Welcome to Making Peace Visible, the podcast about peace, conflict, and the media. Our guest this episode is veteran TV journalist Paul Salmon. Paul is best known as business and economics correspondent for the PBS NewsHour, where he's worked for more than 36 years. He's also authored books on business and finance, and he's taught at Yale, Brandeis, and West Point. In 2019, he co-founded the American Exchange Project, a bridge-building initiative that brings high school students from across the country to meet, work with, and live with others in communities that are completely different from their own. I decided to invite Paul to this show after watching a segment he produced for the NewsHour about a year ago, part of a series looking back on the divisions that led up to the January 6th insurrection. That segment featured the American Exchange Project, among other efforts around the United States designed to counter polarization. For two years, in online hangouts featuring everything from push-up contests to sibling squat challenges, debates over the Confederate flag to is a hot dog a sandwich, high schoolers north and south have connected and this July hit the road to see each other's America. He also featured Columbia professor and polarization researcher Peter Coleman, who we interviewed on our last episode. Half of America feels estranged or alienated from someone in their own personal family because of politics. I wanted to know his thoughts about journalism that covers peace and conflict more generally. I also wanted to hear his opinions about how economic inequality factors into the political divides we see today. Paul, welcome to Making Peace Visible. For me, as a host of a podcast about journalism and peacebuilding, seeing your report on badly needed bridge building and reconciliation projects in the U.S. was music to my ears. Glad to hear it. <laughs> yeah, but why do you think we see so little coverage of efforts like these? Well, the old cliche, which, which is a cliche because it's in large measure true, is if it bleeds, it leads. Uh, so January 6th is a great story full of drama, full of bad guys, depending on your point of view, of course, full of action, full of exciting video, if you're in the video business as I am. Peace building stories aren't particularly visual, aren't particularly dramatic. They're necessarily long-term efforts. And how are you going to keep the audience's attention by telling them or showing them, trying to show them about how to how you make things better, maybe over some long period of time with people talking about it and nobody battering down doors or giving police people policemen or women heart attacks. Well, there is drama in reconciliation. There is drama when people move from one place to another in terms of their thinking about other people. I thought you did a nice job in that report about bringing that out. And I yeah, think no, you... I, I, look, I, I, I chose examples for which there was footage of dramatic attempts to reconcile, whether it was people from different political backgrounds meeting for the first time. So sure, you try with any story you tell to, to get as much human interest into it as possible. I mean, look, all of us, all communicators are in the business of trying to grab and keep people's attention. And there are tried and true ways to do it. 
The images move. The images are surprising. The images are funny. I, I've always in my career tried to play the quirky and funny to give people some sense of relief or just enjoyment. But you're up against practitioners who have honed their skills with regard to how do you, you keep attention. And you are at a disadvantage if you're trying to keep people's attention with the story about how do we, a non-visual story about how, how, how to make people get along better. And, and look, the story you are talking about that I did for the news hour back a little more than a year ago, this is on YouTube. And then you can see on YouTube how many people have watched. I have segments that I personally have done, one on Donald Trump's financial problems, another one on people in the so-called FIRE movement, that's financial independence, retire early. That have 5 million views on YouTube. This story, political polarization, I'm looking at it right now, so this is up to the minute, 6.9 thousand views. Mm. That tells you a lot right there. Yeah. And so people can say, as they have in the polls that Peter Coleman cites, that they are extremely concerned about polarization and no doubt they are telling the truth. Right. But are they going to tune into a story on the PBS NewsHour or more to the point, send it to a friend and say, look, at here's the link to the YouTube story? No. <laughs> right. I'm looking at the numbers. No. But there is evidence that suggests that people are interested in stories about solutions to problems. And that's what you did in your report. Oh, look, the solution to the problem of how do you, fire, how do you become financially independent and retire early has 5 million views. And it was practical. Mm -hmm. It was... Here's what you do. Here's how much money you amass. Here's then how you cut your spending and then how you live off the income from the index stock index fund into which you put the money that you've saved. Right. So it's not as if people aren't, aren't interested in news they can use. Mm -hmm. But those are a different... I mean, they're... They're solutions, though. They're solutions. You no, use they the word are. solutions. No, no argument there. But I mean, they... The um, things to like solutions to climate change as opposed to. I mean, I've right. done I've done some stories on solutions to climate change. The point is, how real are they? I did a story in two thousand and six, did a series actually on solutions to climate change. It was a way of leaching carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere by running a slurry on a big structure like a goal football goalposts. You would then bury, sequester in the terminology of mm -hmm, right. climate change amelioration. Uh, you would bury it, right? Only in, the, I think, the fall of last year was a, the first actual practical ap application, maybe practical application mm -hmm. of it. So that's 16 years later. Right. I mean, so you become quite diffident as a reporter yeah. about saying, hey, Here's the latest, greatest, whatever. And then, nah, <laughs> <laughs> well, didn't quite work out. Yeah. And then who believes you? The audience has to go, oh my God. And then you, there's a bunch of times where you do that and nothing pans out. And then the next time the executive producer says to you, uh-uh, we're not, we're not sticking our neck out again. Right, right. And so solutions of that sort are fraught for that very reason. 
look at another aspect of your particular approach to, I mean, you're an economics reporter. I mean, that's that's yeah. been your beat. I think economic inequality is a significant component of the anger and hostility that drives the polarization we're experiencing. I agree. How important a factor do you think economic inequality is? Oh, it's, very, it's, it's extremely important. I don't think of it just as economic inequality. I think of it more as economic and status inequality. Mm -hmm. Because if you actually look at the numbers, there's lots of redistribution. There's so many government programs here in this country that the raw numbers of income, for example, are significantly modified if you if you factor in government redistribution programs from Social Security to Medicaid to Medicare to disability, Title VIII housing, what used to be called food stamps. Mm -hmm. So it's not only or maybe even not primarily the economic inequality, although certainly a factor, a part of it, an important part of the story, but it's the privilege, and it's certainly not, how Americans who who have not benefited from technology, sophistication, good education, and so forth as I have, would would characterize their their careers and their jobs. Yeah. And so there, this whole distinction, that's why the American Exchange Project is it's what it's a key driver of what we of what we're doing is trying to bring, bring people from completely different backgrounds together. They're just high school seniors. They have more in common that divides them. Obviously, you know, whether their interests are, they're not politically hidebound yet. Their identities aren't caught up in their politics. Mm -hmm. and, and we're trying to show them or have them experience their commonality as opposed to the status differences. And, and, and when we started... There was a real problem. We started it online. We still have an online component. They meet online before they go and visit each other's communities. But we started it, and during COVID, we could only be online. We'd have these Zooms. And the kids who were dropping out were the lower status kids. Hmm. And we asked them why, and they said, I can't hold my own in a discussion with these people. Their vocabularies are too big. Mm. I see their house because it's Zoom, right? They're they're too rich. They're they know how to present themselves in public, and I feel like an idiot, or I feel I don't know if they said idiot, but well, it's, it's a question of dignity, I think, to some. Yes, extent. absolutely, it's dissed. People lose their lives on, in poor communities because they've been dissed, as in disrespected. We have an entire. We have two classes, the dissers and the dist, in this country. We've developed that, and particularly in the last 40 years, let's say, when, when inequality turned. So I, I think it's coincident with inequality. It is significantly affected by economic inequality. Right. But the inequality is certainly not just economic. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, one, one of the reports that, I, that you did what, what was I thought was fascinating it was called the Red State Paradox, and it was a yes, yes. very interesting report. You visited an area in Louisiana that was facing high levels of both poverty and pollution. Yes. And you talked about the fact that the states, the states where people seem to resent the government are also the poorest and have the lowest educational and economic levels, and they get the, a lot more federal funding. 
per capita. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I yep. mean, it's a whole bunch of paradoxes in there. How come the cypresses aren't here anymore yeah, and the fish died. aren't here anymore? They all died. As industry bloomed all around them. We had fish kills from the chemicals that were getting in the water. Yeah, killed the trees, killed the fish, killed the frogs, killed everything. Everything big enough to die. Well, you must have complained. It didn't do any good. Nobody heard you. That first story, I did a, a series of stories from down in, from in southern Louisiana on mm -hmm. the Gulf. But the first story was built around Arlie Hochschild going to that community and trying to bridge the gap between people like herself, a left-wing Berkeley, California sociologist, and the very people you're talking about in Louisiana who are essentially victimized, whose health is compromised by the pollution of its major industries, oil and gas, mm -hmm. but who either put up with it or blame their health problems, not on the companies, but on the government. Mm -hmm. Right. We did have at least one person from, I think, the Lake Charles, Louisiana Chamber of Commerce arguing against this, ar this idea and talking about how great and important the petrochemical industry is for Louisiana, right? So it's not that it's my story saying it's a red state paradox. It's here's this really interesting person who did this very interesting thing, who goes to a place you would never think she would go and writes a whole book about it. It's called Strangers in Their Own Land. And talk about reconciliation. There she is in this story hugging people who are totally on the other side politically from her. She was originally doing a story on the Tea Party and started going down to Louisiana. She started going to this town, Lake Charles, and worked for years on the book and finally came out. By that time, the Tea Party had become Trump mm -hmm. or the Trump's constituency. Right. And uh, we know where that is leading. But uh... Yeah, but you have to be very careful about where that is leading. I mean, there is that there is that tendency to say something like that. Right. I heard you, myself you know saying I, it as soon yeah. as I said it. Yeah. 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 I mean, and, and, and since there's this status distinction already, when someone like you or myself or anyone like us says that, it's in the context of a, we have it good and you don't, and we know better than you, and we look down on you. Mm -hmm. And if you think in your own life about, encounters you have with people who look down on you, <laughs> you, you don't like you get it. some, oh my gosh. I, I mean, what's worse? We're not going to starve. We're not going to freeze. People disrespecting us? That's the worst thing there is. You've mentioned a few different times about the American Exchange Project, which I think is a fabulous project, frankly. And it's great that, that you're actually doing something because you, you co-founded the American Exchange Project. But tell us a little bit more about the mechanics of it. It's, it's sure. basically, I, from what I understand, it's graduating high school students going from one state to another to experience totally different people. Yes, for free. Yeah. Yeah, tell us about the mechanics and what some of the results have been. Couldn't be happier <laughs> <laughs> that this is, first comes my grandchildren and family, 
Then comes the American Exchange Project, and the news hour would, I'm sorry to say, would have to come in third. We get a teacher, we get a beloved teacher in a community who becomes our person. We pay them $5,000. They're responsible for recruiting kids from as broad a base as they can within their high school. Mm -hmm. And then over arranging and then ultimately overseeing the weak in their community. And one of the things they do before that is they host one or more of these online sessions with kids from around the country, kids who are coming to their community or just to get the kids to know each other, right? Right. And then we have a week in their community. We try to tie it as much as possible to what's happening in the community. So the ideal would be, and we're not there in Cody, Wyoming yet, but we're I think going to be maybe this summer, you go from Bronx, New York, and you spend a week in Cody, Wyoming, helping set up the Codeo Rodeo, mm-hmm. Cody, the Cody Rodeo. Mm-hmm. Something you would never do in the Bronx. <laughs> and we have kids, we have kids from this past summer, I, I was just on a Zoom with about 16 of our grads, if you will, our, we call them ambassadors, uh-huh. who are going back <laughs> to their communities. Kids going back to Jackson, Mississippi. Kid going back to somewhere they never even dreamed they would go or be accepted or God, God knows like, right? So in those communities, it's what's going on in the community. It's what the community wants to show visitors about what it has. We try to have a day in which they do community service when they were in Lake Charles, Louisiana, which has been hit by all these hurricanes in the last few years, the kids gutted a house that went ungutted for a year and a half because there was nobody available to gut the house so you could rebuild. They served in soup kitchens and so forth. Mm -hmm. But the main thing, and they stay with host families, either the parents of kids who are being sent elsewhere or just people in the community whom we and the teacher have recruited to be the hosts. And so there's that element of bonding as well with older people and not just other high school seniors. Right. And that's the mechanics of it. And then we try, because of social media, we don't really need to or have not yet needed to nurture the relationships. They're all still texting each other and Instagramming each other and the rest. Mm -hmm or a large percentage, but that's a very common thing that happens. And we're trying to figure out ways to facilitate their continued involvement with one another. And as they also, as ambassadors, reach out to kids in their high school, and if they're going to college, in their college classes, and if they're in a job, people who are also working on the job, to build the program and to solidify the the connections. And and one very important element is that nobody has to pay. No, no, it's completely free. We raise the money so that there's no distinction between the person who can afford it and the person who can't. Right. And I think that's very important. I mean, I think we're both old enough to remember the draft, you know, and that was something that was a massive equalizer in the United States. And, uh, I mean, everybody was, hi, how are you? What's your draft status? I mean, uh, that's the way it was back in the 70s and late 60s. Well, 
I've always felt bad about having, I mean, I had asthma and so I was legitimately exempted, but I've always felt bad that I didn't serve my country in some capacity, and mm-hmm. I've tried to make up for it and, and serve the military, actually. So I've, I've spoken at West Point. I've done things there. I've, I've tried to make up for it. But, the, but I thought what you were saying, and I think it was critical to this country, was the extent to which people who were serving were all in the same boat, whether it was in combat or not. Right. You found yourself in a PT boat with people you never had associated with before. Yeah, and that's... and and. Look, the main desegregation effort in this country was 1948 in the military. Right. I mean, because you had to. No, I mean, I've always felt that akin to what you're doing with the American Exchange Project is that there ought to be a universal draft that where you have a choice of whether to go to the military or, or teacher corps service, right. or America right. yeah. corps or Peace Corps or I completely agree with you. Because I... Th- I think American kids just don't have a sense of people outside of their bubble, and it's it's terrible. It's it's yeah. It's very bad for us. And um, yeah, well, so our ideas, you know, what what we're trying to prove now with the American Exchange Project is to scale is that it can be scaled, and then eventually municipalities and states and maybe the federal government will help support it. It does pay off for the kids. The kids stay together. The kids' attitudes are changed towards one another. They see they have more in common than separates them. And what else are you going to do? How else are you going to break down these divides that are potentially catastrophic? Yeah, no, absolutely. One of the things that Peter Coleman talked about in your report and in our interview as well is how to have real dialogues with people you disagree with or that are different, mm-hmm. not debates. You know, and he distinguishes between dialogues and Yes, debates. absolutely. The beauty of what you're doing with the American Exchange Project is that you're facilitating real dialogue. You're facilitating deeper understanding of people that are different from you. Mm-hmm. And that's a real value. I mean, if we had more of that, we'd have less of the polarization we're living with nowadays. Mm -hmm. No, no, absolutely. As a journalist, much of your job is interviewing people who do have different points of view than your own. And Can you give us some tips of what you do when you're dealing with somebody whose point of view is very different from your own? How do you work towards developing some kind of level of understanding? I'm disclosive about myself. I'm self-deprecating. I'm just flawed human being like everybody else. I mean, you know, I, I try to be as little flawed as possible with respect with respect to treating people with dignity and civility and respecting them. And I treat I try to treat everybody the same. And I try to find commonality by joking around about something, someone's cat, the the shot on Zoom, you know, where the light is. Uh, I tell people that I put mascara on my mustache to because I want more pepper and less salt. I don't want to look so old. <laughs> I mean, I, stuff like that. I, I'm just I'm just trying to relate to people as people. Right. I think I'm completely convinced we have more in common that divides us. I, I, I think politics is an aspect and, and sometimes an important aspect of of our identities, but it's not the only aspect. I, I care way more about whether a person is caring or not and would take care of someone in need 
than I am about how they're going to vote on tax cuts. Right. And so I just try to make human contact with people and make them as comfortable as they can be and with, with no reference to their or my politics. Right, right. Well, you've been doing it for a long time. You've been doing it very well. Thank you. And we can all learn something from it. And I really appreciate your time with us today. Oh, sure. It's nice to, nice to talk to you. And I hope you find a way to continue doing stories like you did that address polarization one way or another. And I hope even more, I hope you get more audience from them. Yeah, no, well, that would be, that <laughs> that would be, be very nice. nice. Paul, thanks again. Thanks very much for your time. You bet, Shamil. You can find links to Paul Solomon's reports on bridge-building efforts and on the Red State Paradox in our show notes. And you can learn more about the American Exchange Project at AmericanExchangeProject.org. If there's a high school student in your life, I highly recommend you share the link with them too. This episode was produced by Andrea Moraskin with help from Faith McClure, Peter Agus is the creative director of the War Stories, Peace Stories Project. I'm Jamil Simon. If you found this conversation interesting, please take a few minutes to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this right now. It really helps other people find our show. Thanks for listening. Talk soon.